1: It is Monday, August 9th, 5.02 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, We are, I am sitting in a new location that as Ben has pointed out has dots on the background akin to a kindergarten, but I'm not in a kindergarten. Um, and we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have John Q. Barrett back to talk with us this time about eviction moratoriums and the constitutionality and all of the questions that are kind of everything that's been going on with them. So welcome back to the show, John. It's so nice to see you.
2: Thanks, Kate uh, and
0: Ben and Genevieve. Great to be with all of you. So key question to start, John, do you know Genevieve?
2: Uh, I do know Genevieve. Genevieve uh, has been my student and she was my student in the horrible spring semester of 2020.
1: Same
2: uh, as me. And uh, she's fantastic. And I got to know her briefly in person and then she became a, a box on a screen and I'm glad that she's you know flourishing. I got to know her <laughs> first as a box
0: on a screen and was surprised to find that she actually does exist in three dimensions. Um, <laughs> Yes.
3: Uh, no, but I'm, as
0: I'm sure Kate has told you, Genevieve is the member of the audience who has been uh, promoted to co-host, um, and um, uh, so it's a, it's a, this is a big St. John's episode. I am out oh, number yes, three to one.
2: I guess it yeah. is. Well, in a, in a sense, as a student, she's in the audience in a classroom. And she quickly promoted herself to <laughs> something above that in the in the short in-person time when I got to know her. You guys are very kind. So this <laughs> no, no, no.
1: It was like, we'd be sitting in class and I'd say something like, well, this is like the law on all of this. And then there would be like this hand raised in the back <laughs> of the class. And I'd be like, yes, Genevieve. And she'd say something like, but if that's the way that the law works, then doesn't that conflict with our, like, our, like, I don't know, it was like some, like, very, like, the next triple level of, like, what where everyone was in 1L when they're taking property class. Um, and it was excellent. And so, uh, that semester, I don't, I didn't, like, do grades. I went through, remember, do you remember this, John? We didn't, because it wasn't graded, I graded, we, so. we, we
2: went remote, and then we were going to have grades, and then we reconsidered, and we ended up with pass-fail. And then we were
1: not allowed to shadow grade at
2: all. And so we were not to allowed did not to shadow grade. Myself and
1: and like, we were allowed didn't...
2: to lightly, constructively feedback.
1: Yes. Yeah. It was really hard. So it was just kind of like, yeah.
4: It was probably better that we didn't have grades that semester, to be completely honest. But oh I did enjoy it thoroughly. And it, once that kind of got removed, it kind of gave a couple of other people a little bit more freedom to think about things slightly more abstractly. So there was like a pro and a con. Well,
2: yeah. I, d- I really did read all those great, all those exams because I wanted to make sure that nobody on page five in the <laughs> middle of, pa- of the page had, you know, done a George Carlin routine. And yeah. then was going to help me for not having detected it. So that's, yeah, that's true. That's I mean, who,
1: who would do that? Actually, someone in law school would do that, actually. <laughs> like, like, someone would out you. Not the George Carlin thing. That seems totally believable. But, like, screw themselves out of principle. Like, by, Like, by, Yeah. But yeah, anyways, no. um, so Genevieve, why don't we kind of get started? Why did you uh, – I was interested that you had asked John to come on and talk about this. But tell us what you wrote him in the email.
4: Oh, well, um, I was just so fascinated with all the information and in the articles that were coming out um, about Speaker Pelosi and President Biden and all the discussion about extending the eviction moratorias. And since, um, just quick update for the audience, that had elapsed on July 31st. There was a lot of pressure, particularly because um, it, the court had only let the eviction moratoria elapse on its own by a very slim margin, actually Justice Kavanaugh was the concurring opinion that was about a paragraph long where he basically said in principle, I agree with those who would um, appeal the stay, or I I apologize if that's not the correct term, vacate the stay, Um, however, since there's practicalities and like public health issues now, and it would give time for things to be, especially the funding the federal government has provided to be distributed in a much more um, organized fashion. We're just gonna let things go. So he kind of did a compromise, which was surprising from someone just very little knowledge, just reading it. Um, And then you had all these discussions later, because as you know, the Delta variant is whole different world that we're dealing with. Infection rates are rising. And it basically came down to the hot potato of who gets to try and continue the eviction moratoria.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's that's a great summary. There's sort of been a, a series of moratoria at the federal level. There've been some state moratoria too, but uh, President Trump in the initial CARES Act was actually the father of the the eviction moratorium. So we shouldn't forget that. Uh and then there was a second law that legislated it. And then kind of along the way there have been CDC uh policy announcements that have extended it. And by this springtime there was a CDC order in effect that was due to expire in I think at the end of June. And it was in that time period when the Alabama Realtors Association, and I, I'm I hope somebody can shed some light on what their real concerns and suffering is about. Uh, but they go to court in D.C. and they seek uh, a declaratory judgment, basically, that this CDC moratorium is illegal. And they win in the trial court. Uh, Judge Friedrich says there is not statutory authority for them to for the CDC to promulgate this moratorium. Uh, but she says her order. The realtors go to the D.C. Circuit to a motions panel and ask for that stay to be lifted, um, not to wait for the appeal, uh, but they lose. So a motions panel continues the stay. And then that goes on an emergency basis to the Supreme Court. And the realtors again lose uh, five to four with Kavanaugh being the fifth vote, because even though the June 30th moratorium had in the interim been exp- extended to July 30th. Uh, it was the end of June by that point, And there were about 30 days. And I think there were multiple timelines going on. I think COVID was at that point declining. We were coming out of it. The world was rosy. And the money that had been appropriated in the Biden relief law uh, to bail out, in effect, the tenants and landlords was enacted, appropriated, was Due to flow through the pipeline. So, you know, kind of in that mix of there's not much time left, Uh, this is a fluid situation, there are appropriated funds coming. Justice Kavanaugh kind of holds his nose and says, I will vote with the liberals, if you will, Chief Justice Roberts and the three more liberals, um, not to vacate Judge Friedrich's stay, which is the DC Circuit's bigger stay uh and if there's anything more coming we're going to need a new law if you're going to reenact this another time nationwide we need a new law um
1: can i can i ask just yeah to quick jump rambling. no 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 i you're not rambling at all um but i just wanted to for everyone's kind of sake and even for my own explain the cdc moratorium as law versus as guidance i think what we're used to hearing for a lot of COVID is cdc guidance that gets meant that then turns into law at the state level or at the federal level in some capacity yeah. um through enactment but the moratorium is is it guidance or is it or this no, is this, it is, a, this is
2: actual uh regulatory right. policy making It's pursuant to a statute from 1944, it's a World War II era statute, Public Health Service Act, section 361, uh, which at that point authorized the Surgeon General uh, with the approval of uh, the secretary and through later amendments, it's been put under HHS and reconfigured in effect to mean CDC, uh, can promulgate and enforce rules to prevent transmission of uh, communicable diseases. Um, And it's pretty broad language, although there's an interpretation issue and that's what Judge Friedrich's trial court decision uh, is based on. Um, But that authority is the CDC's sort of blank check to protect us from communicable diseases. It's quarantine order authority. It's product embargo authority. Um, you know, at the border, at Ellis Island, in the hull of a ship. Uh, It's detaining people coming into the country, if they might be carriers of communicable diseases. And then the kind of broad phrase is, uh, you know, whatever is necessary to prevent. And that's the phrase that the CDC uses to say, if people get evicted during the time of COVID, they might be carriers. They now become homeless or they move in with their relatives. That will cause transmission. This is a public health issue, so we're gonna freeze eviction and keep them in their own spaces, in effect, socially distanced. So, so th- I, this is not a mask recommendation. This is, a, in effect, a regulation. A so can I ask a question laundry. about
0: this? Because first of all, the, the tr- chain of logic to CDC authority here seems pretty attenuated. So this is not Um, you know, uh, people, this is basically homeless people are more likely to spread the virus than people in their houses, in their apartments. And so if you evict people, you are more likely to create more community spread. Um, Therefore, we're invoking public health authorities essentially to regulate the the housing market, which is, of course, not what any of this is really about. Cori Bush was not camped out on the floor, uh, on the uh, steps of the Capitol to prevent COVID spread. She was, her concern is, you know, that people in this environment should not be evicted from their homes. And so I guess my first question is, are we using, A kind of square peg for a round hole here and if the concern is not creating more homelessness out of the covid crisis uh because people can't work and people can't you know etc etc um so we should have like you know don't don't pretend this is about covid control this is about using public health recommend, uh, authorities yeah. to effectuate, you know, non-public health objectives right. no, that no. may I, have I hear public health implications.
2: You're saying it's really an economic justice uh, housing policy uh, directive rather than a public health directive. And it, it certainly got some of that. Although, you know, frankly, I think, remember the actor, the CDC is not looking to solve the nation's housing problem or kind of taking that on uh, casually. I think there's a sort of sincere motivation in the actor to stay in their lane, which is public health. And it's also not just homelessness that we're talking about. It's you know the the renters of the world are not all going to end up under a bridge or in a tent. They're going to move in with brothers and sisters and parents and so forth uh, if they lose their own apartments. And so that becomes crowded living and that does become the transmission risk. So I I think it's a mixed bag, I think your point is real, but it's not, uh, this is not 100% uh, pretext. Um, And I would guess it's more genuine than pretext.
0: And similarly, um, when I look at um, uh, the, uh, you know, I I, I look at, it seems to me in an era of vaccine, if the concern is public health, there is there are probably more targeted ways to do this than a moratorium on eviction, i.e., um, for example, you can't evict somebody without note of giving the CDC 10 days notice so that they can swarm in and uh, offer that person and their family, whatever vaccines they might need. Um, isn't this a, a bit of a 2020 solution in 2021?
2: Um, you know, it could be. Um, you know, it's a resource question and a planning question and an administration ability question, but you could certainly tailor something that was much more Uh, limited and public health efficient, I think. I'm not a public health expert. Um, But I, I think, you know, cutting CDC a little bit of credit here, the change from the regulation that expired, the one that Kavanaugh declined to kill, which expired at the end of July, and the new one is at least a little bit of a move in that direction, because the new one is limited, it's not a nationwide moratorium anymore. It's limited to high or substantial transmission areas. Now, admittedly, by CDC, that includes 80% of the country, but it's not coast to coast 100%. Uh, it's those glowing red states rather than the orange states on the COVID maps.
4: And I believe there's also um, a condition that says that if infection rates improve, meaning that they decrease over 14 days, the moratorium ceases to apply.
2: Yes, yeah, that's correct too. And it's also a 60 day new moratorium. It's August 3 to October 3, so it's you know sort of during this Delta and its playing out period that we're now in, uh, which could you know be a very bad season or could again be something that ends with a hopeful uptick.
4: Do we think that it's tailored enough, though? Because it just seems like the interplay of all the different branches here really not wanting to be the ones ethically, morally or legally responsible for evicting people.
2: Right. Well, I I think there are two questions there. Is it tailored enough to comply with the statute, which is this big, broad statute that says, you know, CDC has the authority uh, to issue such regulations as in its judgment, are necessary to prevent the communicable disease, um, and then the interpretation issues within that. Um, and I guess, kind of in the background, is the constitutional question about whether this is some kind of unconstitutional, standardless delegation uh, from the Congress, from the statute back in 1944, to, in effect, CDC of today and CDC becomes the lawmaker without really any guidance or any limitation, uh, which is you know what the non-delegation doctrine, at least theoretically, says is a separation of powers problem and um, a court could strike down. We haven't seen that since 1935, but that's part of what the realtors have raised in the district court. That's part of what Judge Friedrich didn't reach because she decided it on the statutory ground. Uh, but there are other cases percolating around, and. And that constitutional question is in the background.
0: And this- but didn't the Supreme Court kind of answer that constitutional question in American Trucking Association? I mean, it it's, it seems like, like they had a real opportunity at that point to revisit the non-delegation doctrine. The DC Circuit, uh, my good friend, Stephen Williams, uh, uh, may he rest in peace,
3: right.
0: uh, gave them, like served them up a chance to do it. And they said nine to nothing, kind of, we
3: give yeah, up but on but I,
2: I think since then it got closer. In the Gundy case, which was DOJ making regulations for handling convicted sex offenders, um, the court was, it was a short bench. Kavanaugh missed the oral argument. So it was an eight justice decision uh, in 2018, or early 2019. But it was five to three uh, to find no... Non delegation problem. But Alito supplied the fifth vote, and his opinion really makes very clear that he's holding his nose, that he thinks there is a non delegation doctrine. I think, really, the context of sex offenders makes a difference to Justice Alito, who's a law enforcement prosecutor guy. Um, And in some other context, there might now be five votes to revive a non delegation doctrine. So I think, you know, Judge Williams rest in peace, uh, might be smiling uh, about the trend line. So what then. is the
0: statutory argument? I, I yeah. Daphne Friedrich is somebody I take pretty seriously. Uh, uh, I know I'm not supposed to say that it's about Trump appointed judges, but I think she's very smart and interesting. Um, what's the argument for, um, for there not being statutory authority on the part of the CDC to do this. Well,
2: it's, it's complicated and it's textual. Um, the, the codification of this provision is 42 U.S.C. section 264, for anybody who wants to track it down. Um, and the interrelationship of the two clauses um, suggests a closed universe of authority here that is limited to uh, products. Uh, and animals, and not events like housing and eviction. That's how she reads the statute. And she draws on a couple of statutory canons of construction to do that, and basically says this law is not the omnibus, any regulation you think makes the world healthier that CDC thinks it is. This is actually tailored to specific things, animals, products, and human beings entering from outside of the United States. And this isn't in any of those categories.
1: So I have. I'm really. I sorry. Also, I realize that this room is very <laughs> echoey. Um, but I'm really interested in leaving aside everything that we've kind of just 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 discussed about like the non-delegation doctrine and where this power is coming from. Let's like let's put let's just assume that that is going to stand legally. What it like at the end of the day, this means that evictions cease. Town justices don't like or whoever local judges are not like. Issuing eviction notification like notices to people, they're not being enforced by sheriffs. Like, there's no self-help evictions that are happening. All of these things, like, completely forbidden. People are staying in their apartments, in their houses. They're not paying rent, um, or uh, if they aren't paying, yeah, they're not paying rent. There have been a number of stories of people who are trying to like, um, who have been supposedly. Uh, I don't know how much I believe these, but supposedly taking advantage of this. I guess there was a story recently in the Hamptons of somebody staying in like a $30,000 a week uh, um, a house with a bunch of people and deciding that they were not going to leave um, and saying that you can't evict us because probably an eviction moratorium. Group, that actually sounds group of, believable.
2: Group House of Manhattan social scum, right?
1: Yes. Right,
0: I think this is all of our future.
1: Yeah,
3: <laughs> I mean, we
0: just we 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 pay the security deposit on an outrageously fancy apartment, move in, and refuse to leave. I, well, I think this, this is, is such a brilliant idea.
1: This is the dirty little secret of housing, which is that it is a very messy business. Like, I mean, it's not like that. Like, that's not that big, big a secret. But like, when you really get down to get down to it. It is like, it is a very gnarly human interaction when it goes bad. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I don't know how this is all going to end up. I'm sure that there are good faith tenants who are being protected by this order without a doubt. I would actually say that's probably like most of them. I'm sure there are people who are free riding on this order and like, just yeah, but, like but,
2: but most tenants are real people living in Real right. and modest apartments, and it's just housing.
1: Right, exactly. And so, like, th- but at the end of the day, if someone hasn't been paying their rent for tw- whether or not it's good faith or bad faith, and they just stop paying their rent and they're spending all their money, um, and there's some type of order for $60,000 issued by a judge for back pay of rent, is that going to be like, are we? Like you said before, let's talk about the money and where the money is coming right. from the federal government and how we get it from one place to the other. And right. when it's going to be legally speaking, when you sue the individual as the as the landlord for which I assume you have to do first, and then when you can take that failure to. Like the uh, like a, if there has to be a de- like a declaration of bankruptcy from the individual that also has to go along in order to qualify for the financial aid. I mean, we're talking months and months and months of like paperwork and filing, um, and and hearings to for people to get paid, for people to get out of the apartment, for new people to move in, if that even happens at all. If there's not some type of kind of like layover that we decide to like, you know. To, yeah, I think, to, you I, know, So that's what I'm kind of wondering.
2: Yeah, no, I th- I think that's right. And uh, let me grab the opportunity here to mention Andrew Cuomo uh, in case he wasn't <laughs> otherwise going to come up, because uh, I learned in the New York Post today that New York State's... Didn't his uh, father go to St. John's? On... Pardon me?
1: Didn't his father go to St. John's Law His
2: father, the illustrious governor of New York, did go to St. John's, but he did not. Yes. Uh, so... Um, We'll leave it at that. Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, New York State's uh, share of the appropriated funds for uh, rent relief uh, to basically fill the gap is an enormous pot of money that is barely being tapped because the state is incompetent in setting up the bureaucracy and making the application forms accessible and so forth. Um, and I think that's typical of almost every state. I, I think there may have been a Washington, D.C., Naivete that we did PPP uh, appropriation and distribution relatively effectively in 2020, and that this rent money in 2021 would be a similar kind of thing a big pot of cash and it would get farmed out through the states and it would go through the landlord, uh, through the tenants to the landlords and satisfy the arrears and in effect eliminate this problem. But the money's still way up in the pipeline. So, Um, and that's, that's to That's put a fine become clear in this last month, too.
0: To put yeah. a fine point on Kate's question, is this good policy? I mean, at the end of the day, uh, if you're, like, you know, people do own properties and they rent them out and they do have a reasonable expectation of getting paid for renting them out. And if you make it impossible for them to evict people who over a long period of time aren't paying their rent you do actually create a dysfunctional rental market right. and so i'm i i mean i know it's a heartless question but what are the circumstances in which we wouldn't renew a a moratorium on evictions i mean well, I, I think,
1: think
2: Kate, I'm you're a property professor so
1: i mean i've thought about this a lot because this is like, the, the market side of this more than the legal, not like like constitutional side of this is just super interesting to me as a property person because if you wanted to socialize and standardize socialization of property, this is just the most broken winged way to do it, I guess is like how to like you're just like, what you're doing is basically creating you're creating both good faith and bad faith people who are relieving themselves of this program. You're creating no barrier for entry. Anyone who just doesn't want to pay the rent could like, theoretically just stop paying the rent and like, take, take advantage of this until it's sorted out at the end of the day, which as I said, could be months and months and months from now. Um, it's an incredibly third rail type of political way to like to do this to create because as as you said it's heartless to all of a sudden put all of these people out in the street and like and put them in like make them at risk for disease or just like put them out in the street but like this is how we run housing in the United States of America which is that we treat it like a market because that's what we do with property generally speaking and like we tr- we believe that people should be compensated and all should work out in a perfect capitalist system what we know in like in fact is that of course this doesn't always work out and we've had homeless problems that are plagued the you know the united states for years especially in places where there is a huge constriction on supply of new housing that is affordable like in san francisco or in la and austin and like places where tech tends to like blow up and people have lots of cash that they can go and like buy lush homes and prevent new housing development. But my point is, is just that basically, like I think that there's the politics are against this being lifted in any type of timely way. It's like, it is like, as you saw, like the New York Times headlines, I don't know if you saw this, John, The New York Times wrote a bunch of headlines that are like Biden staff scrambling behind scenes to basically put the moratorium back in place because they did not want like the grotesqueness of a mass housing like eviction like on the on like the first year of the president, and like I think that that's like
2: remember Herbert Hoover baby yes I want this name after your presidency. (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly. Like, oh my gosh, that's such a great point. Like the, like the shanty towns and like the Hoovervilles and like, yeah. I mean, so this is just this, I think that the politics are terrible. The, um, but if my, the end of the day is like, what I do think that maybe we can take out of this is that if we want to socialize housing, which I frankly think would not be the worst possible idea to create a bigger, like a bigger kind of floor for like affordable housing and more affordable housing generally. I'm very pro affordable housing. Um, that like you just start doing it and you start making it better. And maybe right. we take a bunch of the in like New York, for example, we take a bunch of the commercial space. Then we like seize it with them in a domain. We pay them a lot of money for a commercial space and then we turn it into government affordable housing projects that are in places that used to have Gucci or like or whatever in their storefronts. But like this is not out of the realm of possibility. And it's a much better. um, I think it would be a much better argument for economic use uh, than a Gucci.
2: So so I'm I'm puzzled about the demand side. Obviously, you know, in hot tech economy locations and so forth, there is lots of demand and and money. But um, the realtors of Alabama, the plaintiffs in this case, in Judge Friedrich's court, uh have three tenants that's their standing that's their injury who are in arrears who aren't paying their rent um you know they're in the apartments I don't there's no representation about anything special about them so let's assume we're talking just a random place in Alabama are there new paying tenants ready to get in if the existing tenants can be evicted
1: it really depends what I'm, what I, some of the numbers that I've seen, and I was just trying to look up the study and I can't find it, but some of the numbers that I'm seeing is that basically there is a huge exodus for, for um, a lot of people have gone back to live with their parents that are ages 20 to like 35, even to 40. Okay. Uh, they want either, um, they want two bedroom apartments if they're going to move anywhere. So there is kind of like you're finding um young people who are having their first ever apartments and there are no one bedroom or two one bedroom or studio apartments because all of the people who want one bedrooms or are living in one bedroom, bedroom or studio apartments cannot move into two bedroom apartments because a lot of the family sized family sized eviction moratoriums are like in areas where there are like one it's like two two bedrooms or more so basically as ben said like there is this incredible downstream effect when you start fucking with the housing market that just kind of like you know that there's like one the restriction of this one like this one area like has all of these downstream effects for every type of renter of every stripe because there's just no movement um and that's kind of what the market any market relies on right so Mm -hmm. i mean i think it's kind of fascinating in a dark way if it was like I I just don't know how we're gonna get out of this. I don't think Biden, unless he makes some huge, uses it as an excuse to make some huge overhaul to housing systems generally. Um, What do you think, Genevieve?
4: I, I mean, what I keep fixating on is like the more normative part of this from the executive branch itself, because I mean, when we consider the legislature as our rulemaking and statutory body, you still have this um, tolerance for an increased executive in this period, which I do find really interesting because if this has happened last year or the year before, I think that there would be alarms everywhere. And I, I don't know that they're wrong not to have alarms now because when you consider how the three branches are laid out, you do have like specific checks and balances. And there was a lot of fear for President Trump ignoring particular Supreme Court orders. That is not what has happened here, nor am I saying that that's what President Biden has done. Um, but when you get like up to the line at the urging of the Speaker of the House because of intractability within the legislature, you're creating a system now that rewards almost bad behavior on the part of some branches. And do we wanna do that? And I keep thinking, like how can we even have the space for this discussion because the immediate needs of so many people are really at risk. So I I don't really have a question there. I think
2: think the courts are gonna be heard from. I mean, are are being heard from and will continue to be heard from. I don't think we're gonna get a new big national housing law, uh, not from this Congress, not in this short term. Um, But uh, you know, the Biden administration in this COVID context is through the CDC doing what it can to prevent evictions, and the real estate interests are litigating. And you know, uh, on the the last developments back in in Judge Friedrich's court, um, the real estate attorneys, Jones Day representing the Alabama real estate attorneys, um, have moved that she enforce her previous decision on the prior moratorium, as if it's against this current moratorium, lift the stay, make this stop. And DOJ basically, I think correctly, is going to win saying, we've got this panel opinion uh, which stayed everything. That's the law of the case in the DC circuit. And
0: and which the Supreme Court did not overturn. The Supreme Court did
2: not overturn. And
0: by the way, the order that she enjoined does not exist
2: anymore.
0: And you don't get to litigate on the basis of something. That has been superseded by something else. Yeah.
2: Um, See the travel ban cases. Exactly. Exactly. But there will be new challenges that pop up. This one may be moot, but then a refiling of a new challenge. And there's a Sixth Circuit case. And I think there's a Fifth Circuit case and an Eleventh Circuit case. And these are going to converge on the merits, maybe not this term, but eventually at the Supreme Court, and the statutory question and the non-delegation question and maybe the takings clause question are all merits issues that I think uh, will get decided in some way.
1: Yeah, I think I love the takings. I mean, you know I love the takings clause issue. But like I love the takings issue because I do not understand how you make a case in this day and age and in COVID that if you seized land, if you seized housing, if you seize some type of like um, building or land from the state to answer for the eviction moratorium and to put in place like affordable housing, I do not see how you how you would have a challenge in like from for public use. Like it just is. It seems like duh. It's just that they're not going to do it for political reasons. Um, uh, Richard, you had a related question to uh, to Genevieve, so I left you on the screen. But nice to see you. Oh wait, um, I can't. Oh, there you go.
3: Can Can you see? Can you hear me? Can I see me? Yes. Okay. Um, so I, I'm wondering if you can help me understand um, what what the relationship is between the. Me- The authority of the president and that of an agency within the executive branch. And I mean this at even a more general level than what we're doing, what we're dealing with here with the CDC, relationship with the CDC to the president. And just in general, how circumcised, you know, historically has an agency's authority been seen to be? And is there any sense in which they might act on behalf of the president?
2: Um, well, I would start by saying there are two kinds of agencies. Mm-hmm. Some are unambiguously in the executive branch, and some are more quasi-independent and a little bit insulated from the command structure of the executive branch. Whichever type we're talking about, it's governed by an organic statute, the the law that gives it its job. Uh, and so the president can't You know, to tell the CDC to go into some other field of endeavor. Its job is public health under its organic statute, but within the terms of the statute and within the structure of appointments, the command authority, policy initiatives, priorities are shaped from above, Uh, and the leadership is politically appointed. uh, You know, within an administration, so. Um, you know th- there is significant executive control
3: so so they um, so they the uh, an agency can't just do it what it wants and say uh, well we're we're carrying out what the president wants to do and uh, i guess it's, that's not really what not, i'm not out yeah.
2: beyond its organic statute and yeah. or some other constitutional winner of an argument that you have authority to do that.
0: And not beyond the president's own toleration of what the agency had might be contemplating. And so, you know, you get to do that until the point at which you are removed by the president or directed by the president to do otherwise.
2: Right. This is a case where, I mean, we know in the month since the Supreme Court declined to vacate the stay that, you know, the Biden administration thought everything was cool because COVID was receding and then realized we were back in trouble and at the last minute sought legislation and that couldn't couldn't happen. Uh, and then thought and really kind of lawyered in press conferences too much, um, thought or described the Supreme Court as having decided something that precluded a new moratorium. Uh, and then Dr. Walensky issued a new and slightly restricted moratorium.
1: So I have a quick question just before I bring in the next round of people. Um, what do you give the What do you give the over under on how long do you think this moratorium is going to keep being uh, keep going? So like obviously it goes to October October one now, right? That was the new date. Uh, right? October
2: three. October, October
1: 3. three. Right. Okay. Um, October three. Do you think it'll be renewed again? Actually, it's a good poll question. Right. I will ask. The, I will see what, what people think.
0: Well, isn't there an antecedent question of whether the Supreme Court or, or the courts collectively will tolerate it that long? Right.
1: Till October 3rd? I think that they will.
2: But what Friedrich, Judge Friedrich had a hearing today, and she uh, said that there's been an element of gamesmanship, that was her word, in the... <laughs> Biden administration's course here, and that she'll issue a decision in the near future. I Although think she's bound, she is bound by the circuit panel decision, but then you know, going above her, back to the circuit, trying to expedite an appeal in the circuit, trying to get some kind of stay in the Supreme Court, um, that will all accelerate and probably before October 3rd.
0: I do want to say that there is a pretty fierce defense of the Biden administration on the law Mm -hmm. in lawfare today by Jack Goldsmith, whom you might not expect to uh, uh, take this view. But his view is that as a legal matter, as opposed to an optics matter, the case is very simple. Dabney Friedrich issued an order. The D.C. Circuit reversed it. Um, The Supreme Court did not, whatever Brett Kavanaugh may say in a sole concurrence, they did not lift uh, the stay or interfere with the D.C. Circuit's order. Therefore, the Biden administration is entitled to rely on the D.C. Circuit as the governing order of the case. Full stop, no buts, no exceptions the rest is all optics. And, um, and then he goes on to criticize the Biden administration's handling of the optics. Mm-hmm. But as a legal matter, uh, he regards it as not merely a question on which people are getting it wrong, but an easy question, i.e. the administration is fully within its rights to do what it did.
2: Uh, on the statute. And I, and uh, I agree with that. Yeah, and Larry Tribe had a Boston Globe op-ed piece that says, you know, a lot of that too. I think that's right. But the non-delegation issue, the takings issue, there are things that Judge Friedrich didn't reach and another case might reach it.
1: I think that we, like, that all of this has been there for this entire time. And we were also panicked dealing with COVID, that it's just, like, I think that, like, people are just getting it together. I do not think that that kind of speed bodes well for how this is going to play out or how quickly that money gets released or anything else. I just think that we're a little, everyone for rightly is a little bit behind the ball because there were other fires that had to be put out before we kind of dealt with like some of the the non-delegation issues around like eviction moratoria. But Real fire. Uh,
0: but we have right. here Justices Tomei and with pants to resolve the question for <laughs> I us. I know.
1: It's true. I want Paula to read her question or like state her question, um, the first question that you asked Paula, and then I want uh, EG to like read his question because I think that they're like, I just, I thought that they were really nice next to each other. So just gonna put that out there that I'm curating. Hold on, I'm gonna oh. unmute you. There you go.
5: Okay, so my first question is, what is the role of intuition, morality and intention when examining the permissibility of the omission moratorium and the action of the president, especially considering we're concerned with
1: executive overreach? And E.G., what was your question?
3: So am I a chump for having been paying my rent for the past year (laughs) and a half during the pandemic? Yeah.
1: (laughs) <laughs> okay. Thank you both for being good, being uh, good sports. Um, I'll restate uh, Paula's excellent question, uh, just so that we we have it. So, the, what is the role of intuition, morality, and intention? I would, when examining the legality and permissibility of the eviction moratorium and the actions of presidents, especially now that we are so concerned with executive power overreach, I would say one: we've always been exe- Uh, concerned with executive power overreach in particular the last four or five years but before that uh we're and i think that anyone any type of law professor worth their salt would have to tell you that the role of intuition morality and intention should have everything to do with examining the legality and permissibility of of an eviction maybe that's just my maybe that's just my critical legal studies speaking but like i'm what do you think john
2: no i'm with you i think you know, in the end, judges are result pickers, um, you know, drawing on different methodologies and ideas of their jobs, but um, they're choosing a bottom line. And I think the intentions and assessments and motivations all go into that. The DOJ brief, this last brief filed to Judge Friedrich is all about, you know, like, holy cow, COVID is a disaster again. You know, we're not proceeding in bad faith. We're not making stuff up. We're dealing, or CDC is dealing with, a Delta crisis here, and there are 400,000 cases of evicted people who got COVID that the statistics indicate um, would have been prevented by an eviction prevention, uh, an eviction moratorium. Um, so, you know, I take that at face value, and it's very serious. And I think it matters to anybody who's trying to decide, is this just screw the landlords? Is this just socializing housing? Is this letting everybody be a chump? or is this public health?
0: But can I say that like the, the crits and the non-originalist, uh, textualist types can take this point too far sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you're, You know, if you write the legal opinion that says I'm going to defer to CDC on this and let this moratorium stand because I have a moral intuition that we're way less well off without a moratorium than with one. And that's a, you know, that's based on some combination of my, uh, you know, personal experience, religious worldview, uh, personal morality. Uh, there's very little reason for anybody who doesn't share those qualities with you to take your ruling seriously as a judge. Um at some point I mean while well, even I if even if they
1: do, honestly.
0: I'm right. sorry? I mean you agree no and still
1: overturn someone if it doesn't like if it doesn't
0: No no no. My 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 point is if you simply wear it on your sleeve and right. say and say hey, this is my moral intuition, so I'm gonna use my authority as a judge to force it down your throat. The, the proper response to that is disrespect. And similarly, I don't think anybody here would argue, so what you should really do is hide the ball, operate on the basis of your moral intuition, but just couch it in a lot of good language, right? So like a good judge is actually principled. Now. The, the 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 where the question gets hard is um, if you take good serious legal minds who are genuinely principled, but who have different moral and I forget the way Paula framed the question intuitions about certain questions, they're not always going to get the same answer because those um, those intuitions actually do affect the way they think about certain certain questions and i think what kate and john are both saying is that that is inevitable and that it's nothing to run away from but i wouldn't want you to take from that that therefore principle doesn't exist or oh, therefore that's a wonderful point no that I, therefore yeah. that there's you know no there's no
1: that law doesn't matter. There's no,
0: no that, such or thing as is is no neutral. Law. No, no,
2: I'm not saying or that at is,
1: all. No, I don't think no. either of us would say that. But right. no, not at all. It's just that, like, at the end of the day, when it comes to defining some of these things, we are creatures of construct and culture and our own, like, you know, and the in the times we live in, and that, like, oh, like, and for everything from definitional, like, kind of decisions to to you know, to, to things that are going to be more normatively or prescriptively outcome driven i um but yes I, or,
0: or even just let me let me give another example that we an example very tangible one that we've talked about on this show before um uh uh so in the case that the I forget the name of the case I, i'm bad with captions uh the application of title seven to uh Trans and and sexual orientation. Bostock. Bostock. Thank you. Um, I think it's reasonable to say that if this same question had presented to somebody who believes the things that Neil Gorsuch believes jurisprudentially 25 years ago, it would have been laughed at.
1: Yes,
0: and the difference, just is, like
1: Lawrence v. Texas was laughed at in, before 2005. Although
0: Lawrence v. Texas, you know, had, um, uh, you know, Bowers had four votes for it. So I mean, well, but, just
2: like Loving versus Virginia was yes, laughed at in the right, 1950s. I mean, right. What do you
1: mean? Like what we? Well, yeah, and thank and you. And it's
0: not—it's not, it's not that you, John, the perfect. law changed; it's that Gorsuch's sense of what, what's laughable changed
1: yeah the norms around it changed
0: and that's a good example of just intuition like like does the because of sex in the in title seven cover you know transgender uh uh discrimination if you'd asked a Neil Gorsuch like thinker in 1975 that question I I think he would have giggled because the idea that 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 trans rights was something that we needed to think about just hadn't penetrated the culture yet. Now it does, and so we think about that same statutory language differently. And I think that, and even an originalist textualist like Gorsuch thinks about that statutory language differently. And so that's, a, I think a pretty a pretty pristine example of something that where the moral intuition is, is affecting even the people who deny that it has any place in 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 consideration.
1: I I just want to say this is just a funny story. Um, my parents both went to kind of like run of the mill kind of just go to like lower like they paid for their own law school and so they went to like where they got scholarships and um, you know grew up kind of just. Learning New York State law, always doing New York State law, and then my parents obviously both became judges, as we talked about before. I came home from Georgetown my first sem- <laughs> after my first semester, and I told them about critical legal studies, and my parents were like, "What are you learning?" And like, go, like we're not helping you with tuition anymore <laughs> like.
0: and they started and, and that's how it all ended up on fox news yeah, they're just like, uh, oh my God. judge judge klonick uh picked up the phone and called sean hannity and said look what my daughter's being taught no in law it, was, school. it
1: wasn't that it was that my mom was and both of them were just emphatic and i don't know how else to like put this that they followed the law that they just right followed the law that that was like it was not they were not inserting their opinions or the changing norms of society and like what happens in law school is you focus on all these huge big picture supreme court cases that are being reflective and are policy kind of like directives in their own right and then the -the run-of-the-mill cases in like general courts of like general jurisdiction people most of the cases are not hard cases and most of them you you can just follow the law and it just tells you exactly even sometimes if it's a little sad or you know or whatever else you just follow the law so anyway sorry that was just kind of my
2: my even even back to this one it it, in the end we've got a section of this uh public health service act which judges will read and judge friedrich comes out in one place the dc circuit may come out in another place the sixth circuit is going to be you know in the end the supreme court is going to be where they are in the background will be you know, attitudes, experiences, the point in time we're at, the kind of worldview of good faith and COVID and so forth. But text, the actual materials, the wording, the proper construct of the two clauses, um, that's judicial work. And I think that that's where this will end up.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Paula has another question and then we're gonna end. Uh, Paula, what is your second question?
5: Um, So I think this is maybe more to your point on the the downstream effects on the markets and the landlords themselves. And maybe I'm dropping the ball by asking the question here. I would assume that unemployment would, would, having or receiving unemployment should be used for rent, right? I mean, that would be my assumption. Or that I think you said that there was relief for those who were landlords, why there is no change in the onus or the responsibility instead of giving those paychecks to renters to make that payment themselves. Cause I mean, that's, I don't know, that's a naive assumption to assume that the unemployment checks should be used for that. And that the people who are supposedly supposed to be having trouble with paying their rent are the ones also receiving unemployment checks. And that's what you would assume that money would be going towards. I don't know (laughs) if I'm making really naive assumptions.
2: No, it's a great question. Unemployment insurance is wage replacement, you know, not dollar for dollar, but a sufficient percentage to allow you to continue the necessities of your life, which is food and shelter. Um, So you're really asking a kind of double dipping question, I think, is the renter relief, in addition to unemployment insurance, in effect, a windfall that is doubly benefiting people above what they need. And I don't know the stats to assess that, but that's an interesting question.
5: Or I mean, even switching the onus—like, am I wrong that you said that the renters' leave checks were going to the landlords themselves, not the
2: renters? No, no, they—they're supposed to go to the tenants okay. to pay their rent.
1: Okay. The yeah, tenants wow. so are supposed is-
2: to apply for the compensation.
1: Economically speaking, Paula, like one of the big arguments, I would say in economics, and there's a great book on this by Annie Lowry. Um, that is called give them money i think is like the name of it but it is basically an argument for like very like the reason there are food stamps is that you want people to just spend their money on food stamps and not take that money and spend it on drugs or spend and so there's a certain amount of paternalism a lot of paternalism in trying to basically like give government handouts for specific things. One of the reasons that the economic stimulus checks were so controversial, but also so kind of like, so kind of think that they, people who are strict kind of like capitalists would like think that they were just like they open, like not having any type of how you spent that money. You don't have to go spend it on rent. You don't have to, you can spend it on TV instead of spending a rent all stimulated the economy, all created this type of a generation of like generated wealth in different capacities, and that would all trickle down in some way, we're kind of seeing that like maybe people didn't pay their rent, which brings us back to uh, E.G. Phillips' question, which is of course you pay your rent because otherwise you're a jerk. (laughs) That's just... And you don't want that shit on your, on your, uh, I'm going to say like your credit, like will be toast. If you just stop paying rent, it might take a while, but life is long.
0: You'll be ducks without pants yeah. before you. Yeah. Know
1: yeah. You'll be ducks. They'll take your pants. EG. So
0: <laughs> ducks with repossessed. Yes. Pants.
1: <laughs> Bye Paula. We
0: are going to leave it there.
1: Um, John. I love hanging out with you always. Uh, my You're John a great was very American. even. We did This is the first time you.
0: we've ever talked that neither the independent counsel law nor Justice Jackson, there were lots nor of questions nor about an, an inspector, thing, nor Inspector General, have come up.
2: There'll be other times, but I, I know a few other things. <laughs> I like a few other. Things. It's just what we talk about. I mean, That's true. <laughs>
1: Uh, I think that there's. Uh, I'm pretty. I was. This was great. I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. So thank you for for coming on and. No, doing thanks all that for research. asking. Me. Thank you. And thanks, Genevieve, for arranging it. This is perfect.
2: Yep. Thanks, um, Genevieve. Thanks, everybody.
3: No, thank you. We will, we be, will back. be back. Sorry. Go ahead, Kate.
1: No, we've done this twice today, Ben. We've said the exact same thing. They're at the insane. Time. It's never happened before. We're, like, finally mind-melding. <laughs> <laughs> See, we just did it again. <laughs> like, anyway, uh, we will be back 23 hours exactly from now at, with uh, the treasurer of Rhode Island, Seth Magaziner, to join us uh, in talking about his suit uh, against Facebook uh, on behalf of the citizens of pensioners of Rhode Island, And uh, and Cambridge following the uh, Cambridge Analytica um, settlement and whether or not that was in uh, it was in uh, shareholders' best interests and until then Ben
0: we don't have fun anymore but we have polka dots and at least for now and. whether uh, whether whichever comes first, Dabney Friedrich's ruling or October 3rd, we have cost-free possessions of our rental properties if <laughs> we want to destroy our credit ratings so, um, <laughs> you know you, you
1: decide or, go, or someday be without pants yeah so, yeah.